Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Heard Tell Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thursday, December the 23rd. That's Festivus for those of you that have some grievances that you want to air. Uh, we hope you're having a great holiday season. Christmas is coming on Saturday, but we got two more days of work to put in. Uh, a lot going on today. Sam Lewis is going to join us from the UK. We're going to talk China. Obviously, a um, topic and an issue that just continues to grow in importance. Also kind of going to foreshadow into the coming year because there is going to be so much talk about China with the Olympics, uh, with their economic expansions, their physical expansions in other countries. We're going to have to talk about China. Uh, we talked about the Ping Shui situation on yesterday's program. A lot going on. We're going to talk to Sam Lewis, another of our Young Voices collaborators who we're thrilled to always get to work with. I'm going to talk a little holiday cheer to end the show because we have other heavy topics involved. We're also going to talk about a written article that talks about how the news media internally is probably using some of the COVID uh, coverage and how it affects how the news media cover, covers COVID. Covers COVID. Uh, we're going to talk about that from a po- problematic source, writing problematic thoughts, but that's a good thing because it pushes our own thinking. And we can add to the pile. But I want to start with something that affects basically everybody because everybody is pretty much online nowadays. Matter of fact, if you are watching this or listening on any of the various platforms that we are on, you have a social media account. You'd have to have one to be watching this or at least borrowing one, whatever the case may be. So you probably heard tell that plenty of people want regulation of big tech and big tech. They're usually meaning Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, things like this. From the Washington Post, the headline reads this. Americans widely distrust Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram with their data poll finds. Well, that sounds ominous. Well, that's a noisy headline. Let's turn down the noise and dig into this a little bit. Quoting, it's a rare thing. This is from the Washington Post. It is the rare thing that Americans of all ages and across the political spectrum largely seem to agree on. They don't trust social media services with their information, and they view targeted and other ads as annoying and invasive. According to a Washington Post Scar School poll, many Americans use social media and most use Facebook, but 64% say the government should do more to rein in big tech companies. People are caught in thrall to platforms and devices that increasingly shape the way we communicate, shop, store information, and otherwise manage the most fundamental parts of our lives. With nearly 3 billion monthly users around the world, Facebook can seem particularly inescapable. Reading from the Washington Post, most Americans say they are skeptical that several internet giants will responsibly handle their personal information and data about their online activity. 
and an overwhelming majority say they think tech companies don't provide people with enough control over how their activities are tracked and used. The survey was conducted in November among a random sample of 1,122 adults nationwide. And there's a data sheet here, and you can dig through the information at the Washington Post. Back to reading. According to the survey, 72% of internet users trust Facebook, quote, not much or, quote, not at all to responsibly handle their personal information and data on their internet activity. About 6 in 10 distrust TikTok and Instagram, while slight majorities distrust WhatsApp and YouTube. Google, Apple, Microsoft receive mixed marks for trust, while Amazon is slightly positive with 53% trust in the company. And then there's a disclaimer here because the Washington Post I'm reading from is owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Continuing, only 10% say Facebook has a positive impact on society, while 56% say it has a negative impact, and 33% say its impact is neither positive nor negative. Even among those who use Facebook daily, more than three times as many say the social network has a negative rather than a positive impact. A lot to unpack there. whole lot of noise. Let's turn it down. Let's start with the numbers. Uh, Vince Scully once uh, famously quipped about how stats can be helpful or they can be like a light post for a drunk. You think you're getting light, but really you just want something to lean on. Only 10% say Facebook has a positive impact, according to this survey. Uh, well, here's my problem with that. 90% of people saying that it's bad for them. Words don't mean as much as actions do, uh, and their actions say that that is not true. Here's a stat for you. 100% of the people on Facebook or on TikTok or on Instagram or on any other social media clicked the user consent. You know, that little box that nobody pays attention to, and you just scroll through it, and you just pretend like you read it. Nobody actually reads it. But those terms of conditions of use, 100% of the people that are on those social media platforms click that. There used to be this thing called personal responsibility. You don't have to be on Facebook. Now, I know some people are going to complain and argue that they are the new town square and everybody. No, these are still private companies. And when you start getting the government into thought regulation and speech maintenance inside of private companies and online, you are asking for an entire big world of trouble. You have free speech. That's a right that the government has to protect and uphold, but you already consented to play by the rules of Facebook and those other platforms. I'm sorry, I'm just not willing to give up a free and open internet to massive government regulation because people get butthurt because of their opinions aren't getting the way they want them to go. That's not how this needs to work. Let's be blunt about something right now. Facebook, since we're using Facebook as an example, is spending millions and millions of dollars to try to get the government to regulate them. Let me say that again to you. They want the government to regulate them. They are lobbying for it. They are running advertising campaigns for it. They are begging for Section 230 restrictions to be changed. Why are they doing this? Why are they spending money? Again, actions, not words. Why are they spending so much money on it? Because they're big enough, they're bad enough, they're rich enough. They can adapt to the regulation. Whatever regulation comes down the pike, this is their way of thinking, is going to be something they can adapt to. And other companies, and the next thing coming along, that's the next Facebook, will have to adapt to it. And they won't have the advantage Facebook does. Facebook wants the regulation because they think it'll make Facebook a monopoly for the next generation in social media. 
that's the real game going on here. So before you just start going off half cock complaining about Facebook and talking about they don't protect your data and they don't protect your free speech, you agreed to that. You clicked on it. You don't have to play on that playground. You agreed to those terms ahead of time. Now, there's some things that if they get untoward or get into illegal, you know, we're not going to get into torts and contract law here. Okay. Those are binding legal agreements when you click on it. But other than that, for the normal person, you need to be very careful about demanding the government come in and fix something just because you didn't get as much likes and clicks and shares on your social media posts as you think you should. Complaining about censorship because Facebook is moving stuff and has uneven rulemaking, that's bad. They shouldn't do that. But this ain't China like we've been talking about. They're not shutting you down. You agreed to this. Personal responsibility. What part is that going to play? If you start demanding the government fix everything just because of how you feel about something, you are opening the door to the government being in control of everything you feel something about. That's not good for anybody. Let's go back to that actions, not words things again. People are complaining about how they don't like social media, but their actions say that they like it just fine. Is it good policy? Is it good politics? Is it going to be good regulation to base something as important as how we communicate, the free and fair open internet, the greatest tool for freedom the human race has seen in generations in that free and fair and open internet because people everywhere from almost anywhere now have access to all knowledge at a click of a button or on a voice cue. Do you understand what a gift that is? And we want to throw that away because we got upset over a social media post? And we're going to cede that freedom to a government that doesn't even understand the internet, let alone understand social media, let alone cares about protecting freedoms better and past what they can regulate. We need to really stop and think about this a little bit. Actions and not words. People want Facebook. They like Facebook a lot more than the government. Or they won't like what happens if they get the government to collude with Facebook so that they're the only game in town, because then you're really not going to have any restrictions on them. It's bad policy. More hotel right after this. I'm back to Hurtel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. I want to talk about a piece that uh, is written by a problematic author saying problematic things about a problematic topic. Um, I want to preface this because uh, some people have a problem with this writer personally because of something he did. Um, his name's Freddie DeBoer. Uh, he did a very bad thing very publicly that hurt somebody. Uh, he has been very open about how he shouldn't have done that. He's apologized. He has uh, talked about the background on why he did that without excusing it, that there was some mental health issues involved and things like that. But anyway, he was basically exiled from the writing community, and now he has his own Substack. stack. Uh, Freddie, just so we have all the filters up front, he's very progressive to the left, uh, borderline socialist revolutionary type stuff, but he's very clear thinking, and I appreciate his insight, even though I disagree with him on a lot of things, and he's a very talented writer. He has written a piece that I have kept thinking about since I read it the first time, and he touches on some things. Uh, about how COVID is being covered. And he's covering it from a position of the folks that habitate the higher levels of our news media, 
they are a certain group of people that have a lot of sameness. They have a lot of sameness of thought. They have a lot of sameness in background, how they achieve those positions of power and trust in our society. And what I'm going to read the excerpt from this, and this is on Freddie's Substack. You can, this is part of the free part. You can subscribe and read this. I share his concerns because just bringing this up gets people's priors going and it gets people upset. And you have to understand for the context here, this is about halfway through the piece. He starts out talking about how horrible COVID is, the death toll, how he's very much pro-vaccine, all those sorts of things. And then he gets into the meat of what he wants to discuss. And I think it's important for how we converse about COVID. And I think this is a perspective people need to chew on a little bit. Reading from Freddie DeBoer. Uh, the vast, vast majority of people are going to survive this pandemic. And the remarkable efficiency of Pfizer's upcoming antiviral will fundamentally change treatment, dramatically lower deaths. I write all this knowing that what I am saying is responsible and buttressed by evidence. Remember, this is about halfway through his piece. But the environment our media has created is so wildly sensationalistic and addicted to doomsaying that I get anxious just writing this. I'm afraid I'll be called an anti-vaxxer for asserting the power of vaccines. Why do they, meaning the news media, want it to be worse? I keep chewing on what function this disaster porn performs. It's hard to say that it has any bearing on public health. Does anyone think that the problem with the vaccine hesitant is that they just haven't been told loudly enough that COVID is bad? No, I do think this is worrying is a performance, but I don't think the unvaccinated are the audience. I think the audience is, is for as much as these people do, their peers, other people in the broad world of the educated, the liberal, the upwardly mobile, if not affluent, the very online. These people compete against each other relentlessly, habitually, ritualistically. I have made this basic observation on several different contexts before. Our striving class is made up of people who are raised to compete and who structure their emotional lives around competing with each other. They go through the groundhouse of K-12 competition, running themselves ragged for scarce seats in the kind of colleges they feel they simply must attend. When they get there, they grind out the best grades they can get and busily occupy themselves with clubs and activities that will help them assemble the best resume for jobs or grad school. They might get a master's degree, or they may do Teach for America or Peace Corps, but sooner or later they enter the professional field in fields of life where education, attitude, and vocabulary are hugely important. Sectors of the workforce where your ability to convey that you are a certain kind of person, and Freddie's putting that in all caps, is an important or more important than the quality of your professional output. And I find that often when they get to a certain station in life, they have a kind of spiritual crisis because they now lack the structure and purpose of constant explicit competition provided. Academics, journalists, writers, researchers, nonprofit bureaucrats, consultants of all kinds, PR reps, marketing people, professions that are filled with people who find as they ease into middle adulthood that they are materially comfortable, but miss the simpler existence of trying to climb the ladder so they compete in less explicit areas. When this major international crisis arose, they felt a lot of legitimate fears and worries, which just makes them human. But when it became clear that the public health response to COVID involved denying ourselves things we wanted and enjoyed, including non-negotiably important things like in-person schooling, and face-to-face -face human contact, they subconsciously saw an opening. 
if denial of human pleasures is virtuous, I can be more virtuous than my peers. If caution is noble, overcaution must be even nobler. Reading from Freddie DeBoer. Elizabeth Currid Halleck's book, The Sum of Small Things, lays out the essential psychology brilliantly. As she demonstrates, changing norms among bougie liberals has made conspicuous consumption crass de la classe. I'm probably saying that wrong. I'm a hillbilly. I apologize. Moving on. But the urge to compete, to win, trumps all. So our striving caste has developed all manners of other signals through which they subtly assert their superior virtue, their superior lives. COVID now fills much that role. With COVID, you never need an excuse to assert your superior seriousness. Never need to wait for the right moment to insist that you're doing it better than all your peers. You can just openly tell the world, I'm more responsible than you. And the circumstances seem to justify it, even if the behavior is not justified by the science. That's reading from Freddie DeBoer's Substack. Again, a problematic author. You can factor that into how you take this information. But I think he has a very valid point. We forget the people that make our news media are people and they have backgrounds and they have environments and they have an ecosystem that they live in. And I think he has a very good point here that sometimes in the commentariat class, people want to just out commentary each other. They want to out care each other. They want to out concern each other. And it affects the news media. Why do we have screaming headlines nonstop? Because that headline has to scream louder than the other headline. Why do we have to furrow our brows more than the next person with furrowed brows to show how much we care? These are human natures. Human nature is undefeated, but we should factor that into how we consume our news media. When we talk about turning down the noise of the news cycle, part of what we're turning down is just people turning themselves up from 11 when the six would do. More Hurtel Show right after this. Back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you so much for staying with us. Uh, let's go back overseas. Our friend Sam Lewis. He's a young, uh, young voices contributor, a commentator. You can catch him on places like GB News and other outlets. He also runs his own blog. Uh, kind of a specialist on Asia. Has actually lived over there and traveled. Sir, how are you? Appreciate your time today. I'm very well, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, thrilled to have you on short notice too. So I appreciate you very much. Uh, lots of China in the news right now, but let's let's take a step back and make sure everybody's nomenclature on what we're talking about with China is correct. We have the Chinese Communist Party. We have China, the massive country, the largest country in the world population-wise. We have the Chinese economy, and then we have the global politics of all this. Uh, it makes kind of a hot mess when you go to talk and advocate and discuss issues relating to China, that those are all factors when we just say China, doesn't it? Oh, 100 percent. I think the thing about China is it's been around for, for many thousands of years, has a wonderful history, wonderful culture. The people are very friendly. And if you go there, you'll be welcome. They welcome you like a family. You know, I remember I spent a good uh, few years there and I, I loved my time there. So many friends from it. And yet. You know, it gets a lot of stick in the media. And most of that is because of the, the people that run it, the people that run it, the Communist Party that simply don't want to play along with international rules, that want to change the international order and want to, to effectively do bad things to the world. And, and ultimately, we need to find a way to separate that because a lot of people don't. And uh, when you don't separate things, we don't understand the nuance. 
um, when you don't understand that there are, you know, different parts of China, that there are different opinions within China, they're just not expressed all the time. Uh, if you treat them as one big blob, then um, well, we're not going to get anywhere in international relations and we're not going to improve relations anytime in the next few years. This is particularly touchy. I know I try to be cognizant of it. I mess up too. Um, when I'm doing my advocacy, especially when I'm being critical of the ruling powers in China to make sure I delineate that from the Chinese people, because the Chinese Communist Party and leaders, Xi Jinping, these folks, that's a major thing for them. They purposely want to make sure those two things, there's no separation and they are one in the same. So it's even more incumbent on us in Western media or those of us that have freedom of speech and have platforms it's really important that we do that, isn't it? Because this gets to the very heart of what their plans and policies for some of the more untoward stuff they're doing, isn't it? Well, yeah, the, the thing is that they try to claim Chinese people around the world. You know, if you live in Singapore or if you live in America and you're Chinese, if you were born in these places that are nowhere near China, uh, they, they seem to think that you should think the same way that the Chinese uh, Communist Party does. And it's obviously absolutely wrong. You know, everyone has their own opinion. You can be Chinese and and think for yourself you don't have to think what the communist party says and and we just need to be clear that that's the case and we can't uh mix them up as much because there are lots of people out there especially from hong kong and and from within china who who do think like we do in the west and ultimately want to be part of the debate just they're stopped from being part of the debate within china you've actually been there how would you explain the scale of china to them population wise uh land mass wise this is a huge part of our globe you're talking about you know, a billion people, you know, their work, their economic might comes from having a 750 million strong workforce, just nobody else has anything close to that. You've actually been on the ground there. How would you explain scale? Because I think sometimes, especially in Western media, we're talking about them like they're just another country, but just by the math, they're really not. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you look at uh, how China is composed, it's effectively got uh, 32 provinces, um, uh, four of which are, are huge cities. And these places are, you know, they have hundreds of cities. You know, in the UK, we, we might have uh, a couple of cities. I think we have four cities which are above a million people. Over there, it's hundreds, hundreds of cities that have over a million people. And, and the fact is that because it's such a large country of 1.4 billion, there's a lot of different dialects. There's a lot of different food, cuisine. You know, the local Chinese down uh, um, where I am, and the local Chinese where you are will have a certain form of food, um, but it's not it's not real Chinese food. It ultimately, you have food from um, uh, South China, which is a bit spicier. You have food from the north of China, which uh, is more noodles, uh, less rice, which grows in the south. Um, north uh, east, you have a bit of food, which is like Korean food. So there's a lot of different stuff going on. And in fact, a lot of people within uh uh, Zhejiang, for example, one of the provinces in the center of country, they wouldn't be able to understand someone from Guangzhou in the south because they speak different dialects. Shanghainese is different to, to Cantonese. Um, and ultimately, that's how Mandarin has come about as a language. This is the language that they're, it's a northern language, but they're taught to all speak it in schools. Um, it's, it's the common language that they all use. So there's a lot of variation, there's a lot of difference, um, and it all sort of comes together. And, and you know, there's so many different dynamics going on um, and, and not all people within China are the same. Um, there's going to be a lot of attention, uh, not just the politics and the diplomatic and the international stuff, but China is once again getting the Olympics. The pressure on that is twofold. One is the world is paying more attention to China besides just the political and policy wonks like us who do it all the time. 
but also because China, and we just saw this in recent history, they use this as an advertisement. They use this, I'll go ahead and use the word, they use this as propaganda. So this pressure on China and making sure we understand China is going to be even more important going into this next year. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is that this is a, a this is a soft power victory for them. So America has, has taken a bold step, as has the UK and, and some other countries like Lithuania, um, of not sending diplomats. I think we should have gone further and not sent athletes. But, you know, we are where we are. The fact is that China is going to use this as uh, in the same way that the Germany did in 1936. You know, this is a way for them to to prove that they're part of the world and prove that, you know, they're on on top. You know, they'll probably win a ton of medals and they'll use this as nationalistic propaganda uh, locally. And they want to say, oh, look, we're all welcoming. We're all open. Uh, come and visit when well, that's just not the case. Um, and they've, you know, spent these last few years bullying smaller nations that disagree with them. Um, and they've also been skimming off countries that have been trying to uh, integrate with the West and they've been making countries recognize them over Taiwan. Um, and they've been promoting anti-democratic forces locally. Well, they, you know, two countries on their border have uh, now got um, uh, governments that are anti-democratic. You have Burma, who, have a, who had a military coup in the last year. And of course, you have Afghanistan, where the Taliban came to power. And China has been slowly but surely sort of allowing the international system to change for the worse. Um, and we've been doing nothing to counter them. And, uh, you know, the IOC has, has decided even after um, um, Peng Shui came out and uh, said that she'd been um, uh, sexually assaulted by a senior member of the Communist Party. And the IOC still thought, even though tennis is part of the uh, the Olympics, not part of the Winter Olympics, but part of the Olympics, which the IOC runs both of them, obviously, um, the IOC hasn't pulled out of China and it's going ahead and they're just ignoring it. And whenever they're asked questions about it, they, they just ignore it and think, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. And if this was a Western country, they'd probably be raising hell about it. But because it's China, uh, they, they haven't been and they've been staying silent. And we can't stay silent on these issues anymore. We have to do something. And at least, you know, there's going to be a diplomatic boycott um, from nations that are leading the way like America and the UK, but there needs to be more done. More with Sam Lewis on her tell right after this. Herdell Radio, thanks for sticking with us. I'm Andrew Donaldson, being joined by Sam Lewis, a Young Voices contributor and expert on Asia. What is the effect practically of the diplomatic boycott by let's just start with the u.s because they're kind of the the big name so far to do this um i was one of those i don't think it goes far enough uh is i know beijing and the ruling powers freaked out about it because they hate the optics of it and they push back strong against absolutely everything they're very petty in matters like this but practically is this really doing anything other than just kind of aggravating the chinese not really. That's the problem. Um, all it seems to be doing is giving uh, you know fire to the flame of wolf warrior diplomacy, which has, has just taken off in the last two years. You know this they can sell to the public as, oh, we're being bullied by the West again. They're not coming along, even though they're sending their athletes. You know it's not not that bad because they're still sending their athletes, but they just want to they just want to make a show and they they want to uh, you know do this, which isn't being that productive. And they will sell this to the public as but we're going to go ahead with it anyway. We're standing up to the West and it doesn't matter what happens. So, I mean, what more can we do? I don't think we should have sent our athletes. You know, like I say, this is a sport is a big soft power and people think you should separate sport and politics, but not when the Chinese Communist Party don't do the same. 
you know, we need to play them at their own game. We need to understand that they're using sport as a means to promote themselves. And we therefore need to, to use sport as a means to well, promote our values and, and stop. You know, if we all came together, if the EU came together, EU nations, America came together, you know, who else we could persuade within South America, within Asia, not to go along. China would be left with a tournament of, of what, 20 nations coming together for a little, well, what would effectively be a regional tournament. Russia can't be there anyway because they, they're not allowed as part of the um, uh, as part of the IOC sanctions that they had. Um, and so, you know, we should have gone further. Um, but in terms of what this practical, what this particular uh, uh, diplomatic boycott will do practically, very little, unfortunately, I think. Sam Lewis joined us on Herdtel. I bear down on that terminology though because it's not just sports this wolf warrior uh diplomacy it's in their diplomats it's in their mouthpieces it's in we see we all see on our social media the state-sponsored tag that's all over everything if you say anything about china now um this is a total full court press on basically all speech everywhere all the time so why do you call it that that wolf warrior diplomacy because it really permeates almost everything they're doing right now yeah, so this sort of started a few years ago. I mean, the the one that comes, the one diplomat that really comes to mind is a guy called uh, Zhao Li Zhen, who works at uh, the foreign, uh, the foreign office within China. Now, a few years ago, he was at the an embassy. Uh, I, I forget where. I think it was um, somewhere in South America. But he was effectively he, he wrote on Twitter something which an ambassador shouldn't or someone within the embassy shouldn't. It wasn't very diplomatic. And he was told off for it. And yet he sort of went home and a year later he reappeared within the within their foreign within their foreign office. And it's just sort of taken off after that. And you know, I think behind the scenes, the, the Chinese have sort of said, you know what, um, we, we don't really care what people think about us anymore. We just gotta show ourselves to be strong and powerful. And it's about uh, you know having a um having a strong presence and having a strong ability to sort of scare other nations you know so there's a big factor within china both within society and within politics of saving face it's about um effectively it's all about pride it's about um showing yourself to be strong and, and you that you won't uh, collapse under scrutiny from anybody else and yet they haven't found the subtle difference between uh, being confident in yourself and just coming across as very arrogant. And I think a lot of uh, it's become lost in translation and they've simply, um, you know, this is daytime radio, so I won't say their, the word that's on my mind, but they're not being very uh, subtle about it. And they're, they're acting very, um, um, uh, in a not very, diplom- not very diplomatic way, let's put it that way. Yeah, we're talking to Sam Lewis. We're talking China, uh, some international issues with them, uh, the Olympics, Peng Shui, some other things. We'll be right back with him on Hertel Radio right after this. Hertel Radio, thanks for sticking with us. I'm Andrew Donson, being joined by Sam Lewis, a Young Voices contributor and expert on Asia. Uh, talking China, we're, we're talking about uh, all the untoward stuff here. The thing that has kind of broke through some of the media coverage lately and because sports and Olympics is on the mind is the Peng Shui thing. Um, she disappeared after a uh, allegation of sexual assault against the former vice premier, uh, Zhang, I believe his name's pronounced. Uh, he, she disappears for three months. Now she's reappeared um, with a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because she just happened to be at a state sponsored event with a state sponsored 
media person asking her questions with lots of Chinese uh, celebrities that are supportive of the regime surrounding her. Um, I I have been saying we have been watching somebody be re- educated right in front of our very eyes. Is that too harsh or does that sound about right to you? No, but I think you've hit the nail on the head there. She's basically been, she you know, she posted on Weibo, which is their equivalent of Facebook, uh, this long sort of blog um basically explaining this uh, sexual assault that happened to her and within a few minutes it was taken down not before screenshots were taken of course but uh, an account was suspended and uh, she suddenly disappeared for a month or two and there's precedent to this jack Maher, uh, uh, two years ago started to talk up about how um chinese regulators were actually you know ruining his business plans and that they had to change the way they were doing things. And, you know, freedom of expression is not a thing within China. That's a big no-no. You can't do that unless you're attacking a foreign nation, in which case, you know, be free as you like to uh, to say what you want. Or if you're attacking Tesla, you know, be free as you like to say what you want. That can go viral. But if you're attacking anything to do with the Chinese Communist Party, that is not allowed. And um, and, and in Jack Ma's case, he disappeared for a couple of months. And then had to do sort of, you know, I think the Chinese equivalent of community service. He, he uh, had to take a couple of educational lessons, take a couple of um, uh, make a few videos explaining, you know, why China is the best place to do business, etc. And you see this with a lot of uh, other sort of rich, famous people. Um, China has come down more recently on the, the worst inequalities of the regime, of which there are many. And they've they've sort of uh, gone after rich people that don't necessarily pay as much tax as they should, and this is called a common prosperity drive. And some elements some elements of it are very good. I think, yeah, there's there's a lot of grotesque inequality within China, and they're trying to tackle it. But some of it is just to shut up people that have an opinion for themselves. And um, in this particular case, they've they've sort of thrown Peng Shui in the same in the same end. They've they've um, uh, you know silenced her and then they tried to say they tried to row back and say no no she's free to talk um but obviously you know she's always got a camera on her and and they know what she's saying so she can't be uh she can't be truly open and effectively now we've got to a stage where i think uh you know they've realized oh, that we have to let her be free to talk to an extent because what we tried to do didn't work and the west has seen through it and um now she's effectively well I reckon she was forced to do it, but she's withdrawn her uh, statement that she made about sexual assault. And uh, it's such a shame because this could be a Chinese Me Too movement. You know, women are not treated equally in China. Um, You know, men dominate the political landscape. And it's such a shame that, well, this this wasn't really taken to, to help women's rights within China. What is it? Because we've you've been talking about it in your writing and your advocacy, and I have as well. The last couple of years, China has really cranked up uh, domestically, internally, the nationalism. Uh, Xi Jinping, of course, with his book out now and the silliness over the Amazon rating, everybody's kind of laughing about that, but it's part of a pattern. They've really been cranking up on that. They are obsessed over Chinese culture being all about, you know, the one China. And I don't mean the Taiwan policy. I mean, one China is in the party and the people are one. What is it culturally going on in China? Like you said, this is, you know, a missed opportunity for inequalities in China. What culturally has been going on the last couple of years for this? I'll just call it a crackdown for lack of a better term, where they're getting very obsessive over the nationalistic components to the Chinese Communist Party. All of a sudden, what's changed? Is that a cultural change or did something else happen or what's driving that? 
Well, as you said, I mean, domestically, they've been pursuing this nationalistic rhetoric that's just not been seen uh, since Mao, not been seen since the 50s and 60s. And I think that has something to do with uh, Xi Jinping's ego. I mean, he is now at the end of his second term. He'll most likely be voted in within the internal party uh, voting that goes on. It's very much not a democratic country, but he'll be voted in again for a third term. Um, and it's all about cementing a legacy. You know, the best emperors throughout Chinese history have expanded and consolidated China's territorial gain. You know, and, and he's pushed this idea of, a, of China's national rejuvenation. You know, they're overcoming the century of humiliation, which started with the first opium war where uh, China lost Hong Kong to the British um, and also Vladivostok to the Russians. Let's not forget that. That's also, uh, you know, People say that Russia and China are, are, are best buddies and that there'll never be an issue there. But don't forget, Hong Kong and Vladivostok were lost around the same time. And, and there are still people within China that want Vladivostok back. Let's not forget that. But um, this nationalistic rhetoric has just been really upped. You know, it's got to very vile. And I think it's happened after the coronavirus. There must have been a spike in it uh, simply because, well, firstly, they closed off. So they stopped having as many foreigners coming in. They weren't as open. Um, and they also, uh, you know, once the virus sort of was more abroad than at home, they, they saw an opportunity to change the, the narrative, to change the propaganda, to say, actually, this is a foreign disease. This has nothing to do with us. And that's why they came up with the lie of saying that the American military brought it to China. And believe it or not, a lot of people within China believe that lie. And it's disgusting that it's got to that stage. And more recently, uh, I was sent a video, for example, of a, of a kindergarten um, where I know a friend who works there. And, you know, there were three, four, five-year-olds in front of a, a screen of, uh, you know, tanks and Chinese military, and they were screaming this, uh, uh, this nationalistic tune out, and they were waving Chinese flags at the same time. It was very North Korean, but in this case, you know, China has nuclear weapons, and they're teaching their kids that, uh, you know, Taiwan is an integral part and that it's of China, and that it's okay that they invade it. You know, it's as if, and they, and that rejuvenation won't take place until Taiwan is is it, uh, comes back into the the Chinese family. Is if it, you know, uh, and it doesn't matter what Taiwanese people think; they just want to bring it about. So it's it's a means of control. Um, you know, there's nothing that really gets people together than a sense of patriotism. Uh, at least I think that's what the Chinese are, the Chinese Communist Party are betting on, um, and it's, it's based on uh, this idea that they've been unfairly treated in history you know but i just see parallels here between germany in the 1930s and them being unfairly treated at the treaty of versailles and obviously we, we know how that ended and uh, i can only hope that this doesn't end the same way but the way that china's acting over the south china sea the way they're acting over taiwan and the way they're still referring to japan as the enemy as if japan is still the same world war ii power that, that brought destruction to china um, it's, you know, if China continue on this way in the next few years, we're, we're not going to see an improvement in relations. This brings us back to kind of where we started on the international stage, though, just to round out this long conversation we're having and we're with Sam Lewis. Appreciate his time. Um, there, there's a gap here because their mouthpieces and their media supporters will say that they are not expanding. They are not imperialistic. They're not interested in all that. But as you just laid out, their actions tell us something very different. And this is really at the core of the international problem that we have where they're not going to change. The international community doesn't have a lot of method to make them change, but conflict is inevitable. So to ask the impossible question, so now what? 
<laughs> well, I think, you know, as much as what I just said was quite scary, we shouldn't be too worried. You know, the, the fall of the USSR in the 1990s and the sudden increase in democracies that ultimately resulted was the high point. But, you know, there was a, there's a gentleman called Francis Fukuyama. I'm not sure if you heard of his end of history thesis, but the idea is that, you know, the geopolitics is done, that there'll be no more real international conflict on a big scale because, you know, all the nations will come together. Um, and I think that sort of shows a hubris that existed uh, in the Clinton years and the, and the early Bush years, uh, the idea that, you know, peace is, is, is normal. And, you know, that's just not the case. You know, peace is the exception. War is unfortunately the norm throughout history. And, um, you know, borders change. Sometimes, you know, nations are on a spectrum of democracy. So we shouldn't be too worried. Um, but we should just forget the idea that China is going to be like us as a liberal democracy, which, you know, don't forget until 2018, until Trump launched the tariff war, we sort of thought China would go the same way as us. Um, and and we, we blinded ourselves in this, this ignorance of ours. Um, but, you know, there are two ways we can really look to combat China internationally um, and to make sure that a lot of the world follows our lead or, or the West's lead and America's lead rather than China's lead. And that comes down to money and vaccinations. Um, you know, so China have their Belt and Road Initiative and they use it to influence uh, other nations. And very often, you know, especially in Africa and South America, you know, it's a case of accept Chinese money or don't grow at all, don't develop. You know, and uh, of course, you know, if we were in their position, we'd probably say, well, you know what, we're going to go for the money. So we're going to go for, you know, whatever China's stipulations are, and we're going to try and cozy up to China. You know, but this is where the plan, um, Joe Biden's plan for Build Back Better World, uh, which was announced at the G7 and, and what G7 nations come up with, is quite a good idea. It's about offering transparent loans and offering an alternative to Chinese uh, Belt and Road money. Um, so this is something that could be explored within the following years. But more pressingly, uh, is ultimately using our soft power, using vaccines. Um, you know, when Nicaragua very recently um, changed their uh, recognizing uh, Taiwan to recognizing China, you know, it just so happened a week later, they got 200,000 Sinovac COVID-19 vaccines. You know, so China's using vaccines as soft power, as soft power diplomacy to get the world to do what they want. Uh, and we should do the same. Our vaccines are way better. Pfizer and Moderna are way better than Sinovac. But because a lot of these poorer countries have no alternative, they weren't able to get the contracts with uh, um, the better firms to begin with, they go to China. So we have the better vaccines. We have the better transparent uh, you know, loans. We should use it and we should try and you know, get into these countries and, and show that we're still there, that we still want to uh, be their friend and be their ally. And I think uh, the Donald Trump years, so whatever you thought of him, didn't necessarily do much for, for the allies around the world. Um, you know, a lot of people lost faith in America, and that has to sort of be brought back slowly. Um, and I think that, you know, those are two particular ways. So money, vaccines. One last quick question before we let you go, Sam Lewis. Um, you mentioned the Soviet Union, the fall of it. We know that was a two-pronged fall. It was economic. But the part that doesn't get discussed a lot was it was cultural, the changing technology. We were able to get cultural differences in there. Is there any chance we know the economic might of China is not going anywhere and probably for at least the next generation. Is there any chance of culture breaking through the Great Red Firewall? Well, look, if you go to China, um, they have McDonald's everywhere. They have H&M everywhere. They love NBA. They love American culture. They love Western culture. They, they absolutely adore it. 
And um, the fact is that in recent years, uh, that's sort of started to change. But younger people in, in China still love it. Um, but, you know, slowly by slowly, as part of the nationalistic campaigns run by the Chinese Communist Party, they're going for Chinese brands over Western ones now. So, I mean, especially with culture, it's quite tough to for, for governments to intervene. This is something that just sort of happens by osmosis if it's allowed. So, unfortunately, I don't think there is a way around the Chinese firewall. China has has ultimately been able to block off, for example, there's only a certain number of Western films that are allowed into the Chinese uh, cinema market um, and they have to be pre-approved. And that's why you see, uh, for example, Mission Impossible succumbing to, to Chinese demands and getting rid of the Taiwanese flag on Tom Cruise's back. And that's the unfortunate thing. But, you know, we'd have to be confident in, in the West. We have to be confident in ourselves um, and, and, you know, not be sorry and not censor everything just because we want to get into the Chinese market. And, and it has to start at home. It has to start with our businesses uh, saying, well, you know what, we don't need China, you know, um, as South Park did a couple of years ago. And, you know, Chinese people still love South Park. And because it's banned, they, they find VPNs and they, they watch it instead. But, you know, the NBA needs to grow a spine. Other other companies like Apple and Tesla need to grow a spine. Um, and, uh, you know, focus on the Western market. And ultimately, then it will go through into the Chinese market. Yeah, wish we had another hour, we could still dig into it, because you know what you're talking about. And that's what we like to do here. We like to turn down the noise and get to the information. And you, my friend, give good information. So Sam Lewis, let folks know where they can follow you and what you've got working on uh, both Young Voices and other mediums so folks can find you. Um, yep. So if you want to, on, on Twitter, I'm a, my uh, hashtag is, uh, I mean, my um, uh, my handle, handle is at handle at East Asia Insider. Uh, that's also the name of my blog. Uh, so if you type in on Google East Asia Insider, you can uh, find a website with my image on it uh, and a couple of the articles I write and all the media appearances I do. Um, I've got a couple of books uh, in the work, both the, both the novel, but both are th- set in China. The first one should be coming out in January um, or February. So that's called Eyes to the East. Uh, if, if any of you see it in bookstores near you, please uh, please let me know and I can get you a signed copy. But um, yeah, it's, uh, there's a few things in the works and uh, China is becoming ever increasingly important. Uh, in all our lives. So I, I hope to be focusing on it for a few years to come. Yeah. And we uh, will definitely want to have you back on to talk about it more, especially in the coming year with the Olympics and other things where we're not going to have a, a rift of things to not talk about on China. He's going to be first and foremost. So Sam Lewis, thank you so much for the time today, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Heard tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, let's have a happy note to end this uh, session today. Uh, Washington Post: A man strung Christmas lights from his home to his neighbors to support her. The whole community followed, and you can read the whole story. It's a story in Baltimore. And what happened was, they ran a string of lights from his house. They have a photo uh, across his yard, up a tree, across the street, down a tree, and across her yard and into her house. And they ran a single strand of lights. The nice thing about this was people noticed. And before too long, every house in the neighborhood had a string of lights between it. And then before too much longer, every other house had another string of lights between those houses. And now in the Washington Post, you can see the photos yourself. The entire neighborhood is completely covered in lights. There's little things we can do during the holiday seasons for folks. Like 
shed a little light. It's not just a song. You can actually do it. And even if you don't literally string lights and bring a little light, you can do something nice for somebody. Use your social media for something other than sending cat pictures and complaining about Washington, D.C. And check on folks and talk to them and see how they're doing. Let them know somebody cares. Sometimes just asking and letting somebody know that you want to know if they're okay can be as good a gift as anything else. That'll do it for Hertel for today. Thank you so much for listening. However you're listening, we sure appreciate it. We hope you and yours are having a good holiday season, and we'll talk to you with more Hertel tomorrow to round out the pre-Christmas version before Christmas on Saturday. Uh, wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll talk to you next time on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.